Purgatory Canto 18 is a third in this kind of trio of cantos around Purgatory 17 and the central point in the Divine Comedy that unpack the nature of love. Canto 16 suggested that there was real freedom in the cosmos, so therefore this path is worth following because we have a part to play in it, a key part to play in it. Canto 17 talked about how that part is aligning with love that runs through all things, that we have the capacity to shape ourselves to the cosmos as much as the cosmos has given birth to us. And here in Canto 18, a kind of third question is picked up, which is, you know, what is the nature of this love? What's it about? It begins with Virgil actually ending his previous long speech, um, but Dante wants more. He's caught by the very love that he's hearing about. It always desires, desires to extend and expand, to develop its reach and its participation in divine life. But Dante's a bit worried that Virgil either is exhausted or has run out of things to say. Virgil senses this and prompts Dante to speak. Um, he wants, I think, Dante to speak, perhaps because, remember, they're on the edge of the terrace of the slothful, and so encouraging Dante to not pull back, you know, as sloth in life is inclined to make you do, but to keep engaged is, I think, the meaning of Dante asking sorry, of Virgil asking Dante to speak and not just reading his mind, as has happened um, before. Um, and it's very interesting, too, how Dante responds, because, first of all, he says, true father, when he addresses Virgil. Um, and this is one of the most fulsome titles that he gives to Virgil out of many. Um, it's one that Dante uses elsewhere for God, for St. Peter, for the Son. He's used for Cato. Um, you know, I think this is Dante the poet showing us that Virgil, as he now speaks about this most important thing, is well aligned with divine love, even though he knows that Virgil knows that he's speaking within the limitations of his current understanding. Um, but it's a good sign, I think, for Virgil's own path back to paradise. Um, and sure enough, Virgil does have more to say. He too is in the grip of the love that he's speaking about, and love always has more to say. And he says to Dante, don't think that love is always good. You know, I think this is probably an allusion to the truism that's spoken now as much as then, and indeed before in the ancient world, um, as if love is all you need. Um, as if love is always, in itself, a good thing. Virgil is going to say it's more complicated than that, because we're talking about human love, not divine love. And if we can understand how it's more complicated than that, and why love is a complicated thing for we humans, then we'll also get a good sense of what love actually is, and how it fits in with the love that fills creation, and how our freedom, our will, can become aligned to that 
cosmic love once again, how our freedom will can align our love to that cosmic love once again. Just as an aside, the phrase that Virgil uses both here and a little bit later in the canto, he talks about the blind leading the blind on love. Um, it's a biblical expression, of course, the blind leading the blind. Um, it's sometimes thought that this might refer to Epicureans. Um, personally, I don't really see why this might be so. Um, I think it's much more likely that Dante, the great poet of love, reflecting on love, um, is saying, look, there's more to love than sometimes the love, love poetry in its kind of high romanticism would lead you, lead you to believe. And that's what he wants to correct now. A correction that also links back to the observation made in the previous canto about how the envy, the hate, the pride that exists in the cosmos arises out of ignorance. Ignorance about your true self, about others, about the divine. And it's out of that ignorance that hate, envy and so on is born. It's a sort of distortion that they're going to unpack further now. And what Virgil says to Dante the Pilgrim is that there is a good natural love. This is what he'd referred to before a couple of cantos back, the love that's in the very young child who takes pleasure in just reaching out for all the things around and about. But what happens is that from very early age we form images in ourselves of the things that we reach out towards and it's the beginnings of that introjection as psychotherapy would put it today where the difficulty arises because the images may distort or shape at least um, change the reality around us that we're busy taking in because you know we are taking it in as humans Virgil explains that this apprehensive power as he puts it that extracts from the world around and takes in so it doesn't take in everything the full nature of the world around but inevitably takes in just bits of it elements of it that forms a kind of microcosm within us so it's a microcosm within us that reflects the macrocosm around us but imperfectly reflects that because we've taken it in according to the vicissitudes of our life and that's where the problems can start where love can become bad um, meaning it can lose track of the true path back to um, the love that is in the cosmos the divine love that surrounds us all Virgil says it's a bit like a stamp on wax and the wax if you like can be pure but if the stamp is faulty um, if you know it hits the wax in the wrong way um, then the image that forms in the wax is going to be faulty too however this microcosm within us longs to return to the macrocosm that it was formed from much like fire rises because it longs to return to the fiery spirit that it's naturally part of and so that what that's what forms the dynamism of our lives and we don't rest until we finally do rejoin not just cosmos and its manifestations of love of course but the divine love itself which was the forming power all along it's a very remarkable theory 
partly because as a psychotherapist, it very closely mirrors what is now called object relations theory, which is a dominant idea about how our inner life works um, in modern, certainly English-speaking psychotherapy. And the idea there is that from a very early age, we are introjecting our experiences, the people that we know for good and for ill. And that forms a whole series of what are called objects or sort of personalities, part personalities within us. And what happens is that when we meet someone in life, we don't see them directly. But what we do is see them through the prism of what we've taken in, you know, so someone might remind you of someone in your past and so you tend to see them by the image of the person in your past rather than by the person who you're actually meeting and it might take some time to shed the image that you have of a person to see them as they truly are. It explains too why we can fall in love with someone almost in an instant without really knowing them at all because what we're doing actually is responding to an image that's within us that is perfect and glorious and desirable and lovely that gets triggered by the person we meet, um, leading to us feeling we've fallen in love. And then of course we get to know the person we've met a bit more and we have to work out whether we really do love them or not, whether we were mistaken, whether there's enough about them that's lovely and the love can develop and grow. So, you know, it's really striking. This is Dante his most innovative, his most um, genius. Um, he really is thinking things anew, reflecting on his experience, both in life, no doubt, and also in the experiences that precipitated the Divine Comedy. Um, really striking how he has a very modern sense of our inner lives, but unlike a lot of modern psychotherapy, can also connect that back to the spiritual journey. You know, this is not just about personal development or describing what our psyches are like. It also helps to understand how the psyche is restless until it finds divine rest because it's come from that divine source shaped and formed right from our early lives as we take in the world around us that more or less carries echoes of the divine that we more or less correctly as it were here as we build up our inner lives now dante is delighted at hearing these ideas it resonates with him makes sense to him but he has a question and it's the question that actually came up before and it's a modern question still now it's the question of if our inner lives depend upon that which comes from outside of us then how can we take responsibility for our lives? Or indeed, why are we to blame when our lives go wrong, You know, don't go as well as they might do? Um, as a word, you can blame, well, previously Dante had blamed the stars for their influence, their inflow, uh, the impressions that many medieval individuals felt that they make upon us, um, a more modern way of Expressing a similar thing now would be instead to talk about blaming your parents or blaming your genes. Something, as it were, that comes from without of you, like your parents, or certainly something that you have no responsibility over because they're given to you, like your genes. How then can we take responsibility for our lives 
which clearly is really important if we're going to exercise this free will that enables us to shape our inner lives to become resonant with divine love once more. Virgil explains that he can answer the question, though actually Dante is going to have to wait until he meets Beatrice to really know fully quite what Virgil is talking about. So let me explain that a bit. First of all, Virgil explains that the animating principle within us, our souls, is what gives us the dynamic in life. You know, this has been said before. Here Virgil says it what's core it what causes leaves to green, it what causes bees to be zealous in making honey, and these this sort of soulfulness that's um, interwoven within our material beings, but that causes the material stuff of life um, to engage in all its activities, to, to yearn to do certain things differently across the animal and plant kingdom. And we human beings, at least, have this extra quality in our souls, which is that we have will, we have the capacity to exercise certainly higher degrees of freedom than it looks like many other creatures can. And it's that degree of freedom in our souls that enables us to resist just following our impulses, our instincts, willy-nilly, you know, much as a leaf couldn't decide to be orange rather than green, um, it must sort of follow its instincts. We, at least to some degree, don't just have to follow what seems instinctual to us. And it's that capacity that enables us to reflect upon, to reform, to redirect that which we had taken in before we were conscious of it, particularly when we were very young, or which was given to us by the environment, be that the stars, our parents, our genes. So we can work with that raw material and where it is flawed, where it's leading us astray, can gradually, no doubt it takes a long time, over time, realign it and so find a way back to God. Now, I think Virgil says to Dante that he's not really going to learn about this till he meets Beatrice because, without wanting to spoil things ahead of time, it turns out that when Dante finally meets Beatrice, Beatrice is actually going to chastise him really heavily and she's going to say the love which my encounter with you in life stirred up within you for much of your life you didn't try to channel and shape it you just kind of stayed infatuated with me um, this is actually going to be really tough for Dante to hear but it does make the point very directly for Dante that he didn't in his life exercise this freedom to reshape the love that was within him and so he was at great risk of following a bad love rather than cultivating a good love and I guess here now for us readers it makes us reflect you know what kind of things that we take to be a good love a good instinct a good desire um, are we mistaken about um, it suggests that we too might have to foster more discernment if we are to follow the path that Virgil is so beautifully explaining I quite like that idea as well of course as a psychotherapist because one of the things which you learn in your own therapy and then realize when you're working with other people is that things are a lot more complicated than you first seem and there are layers and layers and layers to the human psyche that when they're unpacked release a whole new energy that perhaps it wasn't even 
possible to know before because they were concealed by maybe subtle, maybe more dramatic sort of distortions that arose from this introjecting process earlier in life. Anyway, back to the canto. Um, it's now late in the evening. Um, in fact, it's midnight. The moon, burnished like bronze, is high in the sky. And Dante's mind starts to drift and wander as he becomes sleepy. Um, you might also wonder whether he is becoming infected with the spirit of sloth once again, um, as well their discussion of love that had so energised them earlier in the evening um, is now giving over to um, this more sort of slothful energy which is going to be in the spirit of this place. Again, you know, they're in purgatory, these things kind of come and go. But Dante is woken up with a jolt because all of a sudden a whole crowd of souls suddenly rush towards them. Um, it's said that they're in a frenzy like a bacchanalia um, and they're calling out things like Mary ran to the hills um, and the implication is that um, although um, they are running like a bacchanalia you know in a kind of frenzy at least they are running now um, the energy that deserted them in life um, that didn't enable them to follow love and all that's good um, has now kind of flooded back into them and so they're they're rushing around in this kind of rather extreme way, um, but at least they're not lukewarm anymore. They're not infected with sloth. They're learning, you might say, to redirect this energy aright. They're learning now that this powerful sense of desire and love has rushed back into them, how to direct it aright, much as Virgil had just been discussing how there's good and bad love, and we must learn to align ourselves with what's good and discern what's bad. Amidst this new mayhem, Virgil has a presence of mind to ask these souls rushing by for directions, where is the staircase to the next terrace, and one calls out. He says that he is the former abbot of St Zeno's. Not much is known about him in history, but here at least in Purgatory he is respectful, He's polite. He says, Look, I'm sorry, I can't stop. We're caught up in this desire which we must follow through. He does know why he's running, in marked contrast, if you remember, to the runners in hell who didn't. They thought they were running to win a race, but weren't even in a race. Well, now um, the abbot of St Zeno's does know why he's running. And he speaks to them a little bit more. Um, he gives a kind of prophecy about Verona, um, and it's about... Uh, a successor abbot um, of St Zeno's who is going to be turned out to be a bit of a disastrous abbot um, and I think this is partly because Dante in his exile ends up in Verona so this is presumably reflecting upon something of the experience in the latter part of his life um, but I guess here um, it's here too because um, clergy were often taken to be slothful um, at the time um, it wasn't that they were physically lazy, interestingly enough. They were seen as often very busy um, individuals, very much caught up in this worldly tasks, you know, from the civil wars to securing power of local landlords, you know, to doing good works and so on as well, no doubt. Um, but they were perceived to be spiritually, you might say, hazy, because in their secular concerns they had lost sight, lost knowledge of 
precisely what Dante is hoping to re-instill, re-inspire in people, the spiritual journey back to God. So my sense is that that's partly why Dante sees the abbot of St Zeno's here. Um, it's underlining this gentle pulse that's coming through that he's offering not just a revival of old Christianity, but a new vision of it as well. It's just a glimpse. Um, these souls are all rushing by. Um, if the abbot had been spiritually hazy on earth, he's not spiritually hazy here in purgatory. Um, he knows what he's about and he's cracking on with it. And the crowd ends with two final souls calling out other examples of sloth that they're learning about now. One refers to the Hebrews after they come through the Red Sea, growing tardy in the wilderness. And then another refers to some of Aeneas's companions who became rebellious as well, and so malingered, um, didn't follow Aeneas on his journey. And they're gone, quite as suddenly as they appeared. And Virgil and Dante are left alone. Again, it's still just about midnight. Dante becomes sleepy again. He says that his new thoughts began to wander. No doubt he was trying to reflect upon what he'd just seen and heard, partly because it's midnight, partly perhaps because this is the domain of the slothful, that spirit enters him. And the canto ends up with him falling into tumbling dreams. I mean, wonder quite what that's going to mean next.